friends. Thank you for joining me today as we dive into the topic of MKs and trauma. I've been working on this one for a long time. It is such an important subject and there's so much to learn. In this episode, I'll boil down the data about trauma that's been uncovered in recent research and offer some reasons as to why it so often goes undetected and untreated in ministry circles. Then I'll make some suggestions for helping people who have experienced it. I'll post links to the major sources I cite in this episode's notes, but if you go to my original article, also linked in the notes, you might find it easier to navigate to those sources by clicking on the links as they appear in the text. I feel so strongly about the need for us to become proficient in our understanding of trauma. It can be life-altering and even life-saving sometimes. I pray as you listen to this episode that you'll find the information here both enlightening and useful. This is Understanding Trauma in the Lives of MKs. During several re-entry retreats at which I recently served, I was astonished at the prevalence of trauma among the MKs in attendance. So many of them were struggling on a profound level, that place in our spirits where truth gets outshouted by uncontrollable, irrational responses and warped by self-defense mechanisms linked to distant events. There was acute anxiety, depression, disordered eating. One night I found an MK curled into a fetal position in an empty utility room, trying to get control over overwhelming emotions related to something she'd experienced more than a decade before. Another fled our classroom when she was triggered by a guest speaker who reminded her of a trauma-inflicting figure in her recent past. Yet another ran out of the fast-food restaurant where we were eating and sat shaking behind the building, overcome by the noise and crowdedness inside. As I learned some of these MK's stories, the displays of distress and deep-rooted sadness began to make sense. These young adults still carried within them the acute aches of years gone by. And though we might think that time heals all wounds, as the saying goes— what it more frequently does is seal off the pain, causing it to intensify and acidify beneath the surface until it finds a way into the daylight. MKs are not immune from trauma. What happens to other children around the globe might happen to them too, because trauma is unavoidable as we live in broken bodies on a broken planet. It is endemic to our existence, even in ministry contexts where we might think or hope will be protected from life's brutality. And it can be devastating in a life-shaping way. But... And this is the good news. With greater understanding, early detection, compassionate support, and therapeutic intervention, trauma need not be a chronic, destructive force. If we can recognize it for what it is and understand the power it wields, we as individuals, caregivers, and members of a broader community can respond to it in a way that fosters healing, hope, and wholeness. But what is trauma? The word gets thrown around a lot these days. Far too often it is seen as a transitory thing, a temporary condition related to fear or sadness. 
According to the American Psychological Association, trauma is actually an emotional response to a terrible event, which, in turn, can cause a multitude of symptoms and related incapacities. It is, as therapist Andy Kolber puts it, anything that overwhelms our nervous system and our ability to cope. Trauma is not a stubbed toe or unmet wishes. It's a force capable of changing a person's brain. It engages the amygdala, the part of the brain responsible for fight or flight, until it gets stuck in on mode and can't shut off the constant scanning for and bracing for danger. Trauma impacts cells in the hippocampus, which directly impacts memory, both the ability to store new memories and the inability to suppress the graphic details of excruciating memories. This is why common sights, sounds, smells, and events can trigger a trauma survivor and thrust someone with PTSD back into their most agonizing moment of suffering without warning. Trauma also damages the prefrontal cortex, which, when healthy, helps to regulate emotions. This is the part of the brain that would normally signal to the amygdala that one's current context is safe. When altered by trauma, though, the prefrontal cortex will have difficulty controlling feelings like fear and distrust, and this can lead to chronic anxiety and panic attacks. Trauma actually injures the brain. This is why understanding it is so crucial and yields significant benefits. We become more aware of potential harm and can prevent it or mitigate it. We recognize trauma for what it is when we or someone we love experience it. We name it and drag it into the light where it cannot thrive. We pursue the help and remedies required to identify its origin, address its symptoms, and move toward healing. It's because of the crucial importance of understanding trauma that I was so excited to learn that TCK Training, an organization devoted to, quote, cultivating thriving families abroad, was launching a research project on adverse childhood experiences, particularly as they pertain to third culture kids. But before we get into that study's findings, let me give you a brief overview of this preventative tool we call ACEs. In the mid-1990s, the Center for Disease Control and Kaiser Permanente began to research the impact of adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACEs, on the long-term wellness and health of 17,000 participants in their study. They identified 10 common sources of toxic stress, which they filed under three broad categories, abuse, neglect, and household challenges. The participants took a simple test to determine how many of those 10 factors they'd experienced before the age of 18. In cases where there was an accumulation of four or more significant stresses during their formative years, researchers found a significantly increased potential for future struggles in areas like mental illness, relational dysfunction, substance abuse, learning issues, illegal activity, disease, and even premature death. The ACEs study was groundbreaking and seminal in its capacity to bring prevention, early detection, and aid to those whose childhoods had been smothered under multiple layers of trauma. 
It allowed social workers, mental health practitioners, and others to address and even eliminate some predictable negative outcomes by supplying at-risk children with the help, guidance, and support they needed to grow in health and wholeness. Given the importance of this preventative assessment tool, I was thrilled to learn that TCK Training was conducting its own research into the ways that the high ACEs scores might impact third culture kids. The extensive summary of their study's findings were released just a few weeks ago, and you can access them at the link I've posted in this episode's notes. It's the segment of the study that focuses specifically on missionaries' kids that caught my attention. This is the subgroup that is central to my work. Nearly 1,100 MKs responded to the assessment's questionnaire, and roughly one in five of them scored four or higher on the ACEs test. That puts them squarely in the high-risk group for negative future outcomes. Let me repeat that. One in five MKs is in the high-risk group for negative future outcomes. Now, if you're doing the math, that also means that four out of five MKs are not in that more worrisome category, and let's take a moment to celebrate that. But please hear me. Even one, two, or three of those adverse childhood experiences warrant our attention and care. We don't want to dismiss them because they aren't bad enough to get our attention. At 17%, the number of MKs with a four or more score is higher than the 12% found in average monocultural populations. Interestingly, it's also a slightly lower percentage than what was found in TCKs raised in the military, the diplomatic corps, and the business world. It's a discrepancy perhaps due to the missionary world's recent efforts to better address the needs of its children, while the other TCK subcategories lag behind in that area. It's also important to note that the ACEs scores of MKs tended to be higher among those who experienced frequent moves, no big surprise, and among those who studied at Christian schools and boarding schools or homeschooled rather than attending local or international schools. The information gathered through TCK Training's research is invaluable as it stands. But I wonder what the scores would look like if we could design a modified test that expands on the 10 factors in the original and includes MK-specific stresses that deeply impact personal outcomes. The ACEs list currently includes stressors like physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, neglect, addiction of a parent, incarceration of a relative, and divorce. MKs are certainly not immune from any of those, but there are several other influences I'd want to add to the list to more accurately measure the accumulated trauma MKs experience, like never fully belonging anywhere, being pressured to live up to unreasonable expectations, witnessing violence, famine, disease, and other crises, navigating the upheaval of repeated transitions, feeling that God's reputation and efficacy rest on the MK's shoulders, and saying innumerable goodbyes from a very young age. Some of the above might be labeled small-t traumas. You might have heard that term before. Painful but more minor forms of trauma that may begin with a less cataclysmic event, but grow in toxic significance and influence as they repeat and accumulate over time. 
As an example, those heart-wrenching, incessant goodbyes I mentioned above, in MK circles, they are certainly processed like big T trauma by the time the MK reaches a certain age. If we added these unique MK stresses to the more general research, adapting the scoring system to include them, I suspect that a much larger segment than 17% would be considered high risk. So many of us MKs carry the kind of unexpressed, unprocessed, and embedded trauma that over time gnaws away at our wellness. I've witnessed firsthand in the young, teen, and adult MKs I work with some of the negative outcomes the CDC predicts. Addiction, unexplained medical issues, relational challenges, mental illness, and something best described as failure to thrive. Left unchecked, trauma can indeed be an invasive and destructive force, but it does not have to be. To diffuse or disable trauma, we need to recognize and treat it. Yet, too often, those who care for MKs, even the MKs themselves, discount the impact it has had on the minds and spirits of children growing up in the high-pressured, uber-mobile, and sometimes unsafe world of missions. There are multiple reasons that explain why we overlook trauma, but the primary four are these. Number one, MKs who are unable to recognize trauma for what it is. MKs might assume that what they're experiencing is normal because people around them are going through it too. Here are a few examples I can give you, with names changed and identifying details altered. Laura attended a re-entry debrief when she was 15. When it was her turn to participate on show-and-tell day, she briefly left the room, then re-entered wearing a full hazmat suit. She wore it casually, almost proudly more a quirky fashion choice than a symbol of her trauma. It seemed normal to Laura that she'd lived in a country ravaged by Ebola, that she'd seen her father, a physician caring for the dying, only rarely, for brief visits in which the whole family wore those hazmat suits, that she'd lost several friends to the merciless disease and had grieved alone and isolated from community, and that she'd recently escaped the country in the dead of night with her mom and siblings, praying their way through armed checkpoints and illegally boarding flights to make it back to the States. It was trauma, but Laura didn't realize it was. In my own life, if someone had asked me at a young age whether I'd been subjected to any kind of sexual abuse, I might have said no, because it was normal in my foreign culture for men to pat my rear end when I walked down the street— or to roll down their car windows and proposition me. It was normal for boys to be inappropriate with me and for older men to expose themselves to me. It was trauma, and I didn't realize it. Ryan was about 10 years old when a car bomb exploded outside the compound where he lived. He'd been playing with his young sister at the time, and for a few moments didn't know if she'd been killed by the blast that had blown through security walls and rained shards of glass down around them. He'd crawled on his hands and knees to get to his sister, blood seeping from the cuts in his palms and legs. It was trauma. But when I met Ryan at age 17 he still didn't realize that it was. 
Because MKs often live in unusual contexts that don't fit squarely into any of their multiple cultures, they may not develop a baseline understanding of what might be labeled common stress and what actually qualifies as traumatic stress. And because they live in the world of ministry, soul-bruising trauma might get cloaked in words like trial or test or attacks of the enemy. With that spiritual reframing and with its propensity to discount or overlook the human toll of trauma, MKs may never acknowledge the impact of their adverse childhood experiences, nor the desperation of their need for help. To be honest, this is often the same reason that grown-ups in missionary circles miss their own traumas, too. The second reason trauma often gets overlooked in missionary circles is this. Caregivers unaware of the differences between adult and juvenile processing. Jessie was only nine when her little sister died after an accident in the South American country where her parents served. The family lived in a fairly isolated location, and her sister was Jessie's only friend, her only source of companionship, the only person who understood her life from an MK's point of view. Shortly after the funeral, Jessie's parents began looking for silver linings, something that would lend meaning to the loss of their child. Their newsletters and public presentations became testimonies to seeing God bring salvation to others because of the family's enduring faith in the midst of unimaginable loss. For years, every time Jessie would hear her parents sincerely praising God for what he'd done through their child's death, her hands would go cold and her lungs would constrict to the point where she felt like she couldn't breathe. She tried to hide the symptoms of her panic attacks from her parents and was mostly successful until she attended a reentry retreat where we talked about accumulated grief. And she realized that her trauma had not faded with time, but was still as present and painful as it had ever been. You see, Jessie's parents had found a way to make sense of their daughter's death, and they assumed that their surviving nine-year-old would be able to reason her way through it, too. They'd considered their trauma only from an adult perspective, without doing the hard work of imagining what it felt like to a defenseless child with rudimentary processing powers and no control over the circumstances bruising her spirit. So the acute damage of Jessie's trauma went unacknowledged and unaided. It's easy to see how adults with decades of life experience and a mature faith might be able to find a way forward in the aftermath of world-shifting events. I've done it myself. Yet sometimes it's that very resilience, that very brush-yourself-off-and-focus-on-Jesus attitude that makes it so difficult for us to imagine the debilitating shock, horror, grief, or agony of children who live through the same events but without the capacity to reframe them and forge ahead. The third reason we sometimes overlook trauma is the MK's unwillingness to report it. There are two major reasons MKs don't report. The first is a lack of permission or vocabulary to express what hurts. I've talked about this before, so I'll be brief here. Too many MKs grow up feeling that they shouldn't complain or talk about the heart stuff, that they should be stronger than that, that they should be able to wish or pray away the wounds that hobble them. 
They've been taught early in life that resilience is bucking up and getting over it. So they'll tell themselves that what happened is no big deal and they shouldn't be affected by it. Until they're clearly given permission to speak of what hurts and safe opportunities to do so, MKs will continue to feel that an admission of suffering is weakness and that the inability to rise above it is lack of faith. The second factor that impacts reporting is most clearly expressed in this quote from an adult MK named RT. He said, It was well known that if you talked to someone about your feelings, it could blow back on your parents. So when I was assaulted, I spoke to no one, because it might affect the work. As self-defeating as it may seem, MKs will often prefer to suffer in silence rather than burden their parents with what they're going through or risk impacting the family's ministry. They'll put on a good face and even sidestep the question when asked direct questions because they feel like their parents' happiness and wellness, as well as the work's legitimacy, depends on children feeling fine or at least being able to say they're feeling better. This inability or unwillingness to report, it only exacerbates the missionary world's incapacity to recognize and respond well to trauma. The fourth and final reason we might overlook trauma is MKs and MK caregivers uninformed about the process of healing. The problem with trauma is that it isn't a fade-over-time kind of discomfort. Ask the combatants returning from war haunted by PTSD if their symptoms ease as years go by. Trauma is a ruthless force. It anchors like a cancer to one's body, mind, and soul, and it will not move until it is patiently, knowledgeably, and tenderly untangled from both subconscious perspectives and unhealthy impulses. The entire missionary community needs to educate itself about the methods available for us to address the damage of trauma. We need to act quickly and proactively when a need comes to our attention. We need to destigmatize mental health intervention and help the suffering find the courage to seek it, because along with spiritual practices, trauma will require a targeted therapeutic response to defeat it. As a people entrusted with caring well for each other, we need to be faithful companions as the sometimes lengthy healing process unfolds. And as much as we can, we must support the suffering with presence, prayer, and financial provision. For the 17% of MKs who score high on the Adverse Childhood Experiences Test and would likely score even higher if ministry-specific trauma were factored in, uninformed responses and minor measures will merely kick the grenade down the road. Until the world of missions does what it can to recognize and treat trauma as a brain-altering and soul-squelching force, the suffering of children will continue to morph into the languishing of adults. We owe those who are in chronic pain and turmoil so much better than that. I'm here to tell you from my personal experience that trauma need not be a lifelong sentence of anguish survivors can find wellness again. So how do we help to mitigate the impact of trauma? 
I'd suggest that we begin with these six essential gifts we can offer those who experience PTSD. Each one of them deserves an article of its own, in all honesty, and it might still be coming. But this brief summary is a good place to start. Here are the six. Revelation. Creating opportunities and safe environments in which the suffering can reveal the traumas of the recent and distant past. Confirmation. Letting the hurting know that what they've described is awful and warrants the pain, anger, sadness, despair they might be experiencing. Affirmation. Strongly stating that reporting what happened to them is neither weakness nor lack of faith, but an essential and brave first step on their path toward healing. Facilitation. Helping them to access the professional qualified assistance they need in order to find equilibrium and wholeness again. Devotion. Sticking close to the traumatized during the long and unpredictable process of healing. Because it might get messy and it'll certainly have ups and downs, but the challenges will be more bearable if they aren't faced alone. And finally, intercession. At all stages of relationship and in trauma recovery, blanketing those who suffer in prayers for courage and honesty, harnessing God's power to reveal to them what they need to explore and process, and pouring out supplications for full and lasting healing. Prayer is a constant reminder to me of God's presence, purpose, and activity on this planet, and of his universe-wide desire to rescue us to himself. If you are an adult of influence in a missionary family or in the broader ministry world, I beg of you, educate yourself so you can recognize trauma. Declare it to be trauma. Imagine what it is to be a child facing that trauma. Learn what can heal or mitigate trauma, and then do something to aid those who are being pummeled by trauma. We actually ought to be doing this for all the members of our community, but particularly for the youngest ones. See it, acknowledge it, speak it, prioritize it, treat it, whatever the cost, even if it doesn't feel like trauma to your adult self. Children are too vulnerable and too valuable to be left to figure it out unsupported and alone. And if you're recognizing even just now that something you experienced 10, 20, or 50 years ago has imprinted as trauma on your brain, I want you to know that it is not too late to seek help. Reach out to a professional with experience treating PTSD. The road to healing may take a while, and it may not be easy, but give yourself the chance to discover what a life unshackled from trauma can be. There is so much more to say on the topic of MKs and trauma, but I hope this primer will help steer you toward more learning. If you're one of the survivors among us, I'd like to invite you to use the comment fields below to let readers know what you've learned firsthand about trauma and what has helped you toward healing. My own recommendations for further study are these four resources. The first is Suffering and the Heart of God by Diane Langberg. It's a fulsome exploration of the powerful impact of trauma on all aspects of our lives and the role of faith in healing from it. Another book by Andy Kolber is Try Softer. 
It offers a beautiful look at how to heal from trauma while being kind and gentle with ourselves. I'll also post a link to a blog post by Morgan Harper Nichols, in which she turns a conversation with therapist Andy Kolber, who I just mentioned, into a beautiful collection of art and quotes. You can listen to the full conversation from her post as well. And finally, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. It offers a thorough look at trauma. And according to Alexander McFarlane, the director of the Center for Traumatic Stress Studies, it is essential reading for anyone interested in understanding and treating traumatic stress and the scope of its impact on society. Thank you so much, friends, for taking the time to listen in today. My prayer as I release this episode into the world is that all of us in the missionary community and beyond will deepen our understanding of the unavoidable human experience of trauma in order to bring to those we love and even to ourselves the knowledge, compassion, support, and hope our healing will require. Please share this episode or its written version with anyone in your circles who might benefit from it. And make sure you check the episode notes for a link to the resources I quote and a link to the article this episode is based on. And most importantly, please leave a comment anywhere the podcast and article are posted. This is a conversation and I want to hear from you. As I wrap up this recording today, I want you to know that I celebrate the purple you are or the purple you love. Thank you for your time.